this is Ruth. And this is Mike. And we don't know what we're going to talk about this time. We're so freestyling it's tonight. Be, <laughs> it's going to be completely extemporaneous. One thing I did want to mention is that we have an email address, and it is ruth at boomerangstpodcast.com. So if you have any comments or questions, you can send them there to me and send anything you have for Mike to him as well. I wanted to start with one thing that was sent to me. It was by Gloria Steinem, and I just thought it was important enough to, to share it. She asks, how about if we treat every young man who wants to buy a gun like every woman who wants to get an abortion? A mandatory 48-hour waiting period, parental permission, a note from his doctor proving he understands what he's about to do, a video he has to watch about the effects of gun violence, Let's close down all but one gun shop in every state and make him travel hundreds of miles, take off from work, and stay overnight in a strange town. Make him walk through a gauntlet of people holding photos of loved ones who were shot to death, people who call him a murderer and beg him not to buy a gun. I thought that was pretty brilliant. It's brilliant. I wish one of the presidential candidates, one of the female ones preferably, would just quote it at the next debate. It sounds like something Elizabeth Warren would say. Oh, I wish I wish she would. I wish somebody would say that in a way that would get it out to yeah. huge, a huge swath of the whole population. Well, it's kind of unavoidable that we talk about the killings from last weekend. We just touched on them very, very briefly when we were talking last episode, episode 10. So I wanted to endorse an article that was in the New York Times today in the front section that links mass shootings and the shooters with misogyny. There just seems to be such an overriding connection between men who have a history of domestic violence and are likely to become mass shooters. I'm struggling with ideas of toxic masculinity and what all that's about. You know, I saw something on the news about the word replace as a significant word that crops up in white nationalist vocabulary oh, and rhetoric. You will not replace us. Right. And that what I remember hearing is that this fear of the brown and black, and maybe in some cases Jewish, the fear of the other coming in that's expressed by that kind of mindset is a fear of being overrun and outnumbered. And I wonder if the overlay of misogyny with racism is that maybe they both trace back to some kind of primal, strange fear of being outnumbered and taken over. I think with racism since slavery days, the, the fear of the white man was that the black man, it was a stereotype, was more virile and was more potent yes. on, you know, on a very deep level. And so that could tie to the hostility or fear of women also. But again, this flip was actually more the case that white plantation owners raped the female slaves. Right. And there was some fantasy among the plantation owners that the male slaves were going to rape the white plantation owners' right. wives or right. daughters, which is insane since mm -hmm. they had no agency to do that. Right. But that kept on that myth. It was even in To Kill a Mockingbird. That was what led to the murder of Tom Robinson, the trial and murder of Tom Robinson. I'm not sure that misogyny and race overlap completely because the fact is that misogyny begins at home and it doesn't have to do with the other. The mm -hmm. other are the black and brown and, and Jews. I think that there's a fear of the power of women that drives maybe a part of misogyny, but there's probably other aspects to it to which I'm ignorant. 
And there's the fear of the potency of the approaching horde of black and brown okay. immigrants. I, I think there's just something in common there about the terror of the white man who sees himself as threatened yes. by the demographic yes. changes Very that are happening. So. Yes, I think that that's absolutely true, that white men are angry. Right. And anger is, I think, the result of fear. Right. And their fear is that they are no longer necessary in some way. I always wondered if the misogyny that men felt was based in the idea that women give birth and they don't. I know that's a crazy idea, but I don't think it's so crazy because really? it's, it's it's powerful to to give birth. That's yeah. a powerful act. It's huge. Yes. And every man knows that were it not for his mother, he would not be here. <laughs> so, or for his father. On another level, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. That behind every every abortion is a man. That's right. Right. But I think what probably drives a lot of psychotic, weird behavior of that kind is this irrational, deep seated fear of loss of power. Not being the superior one. Right. Because right. for so long, and I think that this is what we learned after Trump was elected, was that there was a sense that white people had that there was always somebody beneath them. You know, and during Obama's term, suddenly a black man was not beneath them. And that was very challenging, I think, for a number of people who More than we that. realized. More, yeah. Much more than we it realized. It didn't crop up until the Trump phenomenon and yes. then it was let loose. Yes, it bit us in the ass. Yeah. Well, I don't know how you deal with that on a societal level. You know, it's, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. You just wait. I think you hope you can wait it out until the demographic changes are complete enough that things balance. You know? Well, if we're talking about guns, one thing that is happening is that the NRA has never been weaker. Wayne LaPierre was just challenged recently. Oliver North, who was the president of the NRA, has stepped down, and they have a lot of financial issues that they never used to have. So the fact that they're weakened, if we can turn around the government to a government that does not want to see guns proliferate the way that they have and can impose some sort of gun control, which I want to just say, if we could just change the terminology to gun safety instead of gun control, I think we could get a lot farther. That's not a bad idea. Because it is about gun safety. Having a license to use a gun, mm -hmm. we, we require a license to drive a car. Why not a license to have a, a gun, which is easily as lethal as a car is? And there's some other strange facts about guns, just in general. The people who die the most from guns are women in domestic situations and suicides. They're not mass shootings at all. They're really in domestic partnerships. I love the Steinem quote you read because it shows the, the hypocrisy of calling yourself a pro-life person because you oppose abortion. Yes. Because there's no consistency. If they, if someone labels themselves pro-life, they would be out working toward not only for controlling women's rights to get an abortion, they'd also be controlling people's rights to get a gun. And they're not. Yes. So they're right. not pro-life. No. Really? No. Unless you just take this one little aspect of what you can call life. But my God, if they were pro-life, they'd be in the streets right now well, after what's been going on with guns. Yeah, and there are other issues that are concurrent with that. Most of the states that have now had these very, very punitive abortion laws, most of those are states that were offered Medicaid and refused Expansion. it. 
Mm-hmm. So they don't have Medicaid, and that means that women don't get health care, their babies don't get health care, there are no known programs for women to become working mothers, there's no child care for women to become working mothers, right. and so they care about the, the fetus embryo. until it's yeah. born, and then once it's born, they don't right. really give a shit about then it's it. A, then it's a drain on society. Exactly. Damn you, you're what's wrong with this country. Why were you ever born? Oh, wait, I know why you were born. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I don't have any... No words of wisdom? I, I don't think anyone has words of wisdom right now. Where I think we're all still kind of in shock from what happened. I wanted to know what was the uh, thrust of the article in terms of a link between the gun violence and this thing called toxic masculinity. A lot of it has to do with the idea that men are unfeeling in a way that they have to deny their feelings, which I think is the biggest problem that men have Mm -hmm. in current society. No matter that we're however many generations or iterations of feminism that we've come through, The idea is that boys don't cry. Having a feeling sentient boy, for some reason, is not still not acceptable. Mm -hmm. It's reminding me of what we talked about last week with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when DiCaprio's character breaks down, he cries cries at the drop of a hat. He's very, he's very volatile and emotional and and uh, vulnerable and raw, and we laugh at it. It's hysterical. But why are we laughing? We're laughing because. We've been socialized to believe that it's not right for a man to cry. No, and he's also a hefty alcoholic, so he has that going for him. Could be the booze, right? (laughs) Men aren't supposed to feel certain feelings, and women aren't supposed to feel certain other feelings. Men shouldn't feel sadness, and women shouldn't feel anger. Yes, exactly. Now, how were you raised? Were you raised with those messages? Well, my mom used to always say I was too sensitive. Because I guess I was emotional. I, my feelings would get hurt really easily. Okay. And I'm sure she meant well, but she would say, you're just too sensitive. So I took that to mean, well, there must be something wrong with the way that I feel things. So there must be something that's not right about my emotional experience because my mom, who I take as the authority on everything, says it's it, there's something wrong there's with me. There's something wrong with you. So what was your option to not feel? Yeah. To stuff, I think, to stuff feelings. And it's weird because the big taboo for me personally as a kid in my family, with the way I was connected to my mom and dad and sister, I really had a very strong message that was never stated overtly that anger was bad and I was never to feel anger. Oh. Which is not characteristic so much of males. You know, I think I think anger in males is more it's not encouraged necessarily, but it's certainly acceptable and it's almost considered masculine, like we said. Right. And there's something important and right about anger as a kid. There's something I imagine I needed a way to feel that, but I couldn't. I dared not. Yeah. Because it didn't fit with what I knew I needed to do to be accepted in my family. Yes. But I don't know that my experience was typical of males across the board. I'm curious, were you told not to feel anger or not to act anger out? Anger was never mentioned. It was an unstated edict that I did not get angry because I was a good boy. Oh, and because your I sister had a role. got so angry. And, yes, and my sister and everyone else in my family <laughs> were screaming much of the time 
God bless them. I, I love them very much, but it was a very angry yeah. environment. There was no prohibition on anger well, for anyone that, in that house. You said that your parents were constantly arguing. They were fighting an awful lot of the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I don't know whether my experience syncs with a broader societal edict towards men in the culture about not having feelings. I just know that my feelings were called inappropriate in their degree. Like if my feelings were hurt, they were too hurt because I was too sensitive. So I learned that there's something wrong with me for having these feelings. Okay. And yet you couldn't be angry about it because that wasn't allowed. Yeah. It just wouldn't even occur to me. That was ruled out early on, on an unconscious level, wow. I think. Oh, I've shared wow. too much. Now the world knows about my no, family. No, because I was also trained that I couldn't be angry. Oh, okay. And I went to a therapist when I was 16 years old who encouraged me to express my anger. Yeah. And my mother was very unhappy about that. Yeah. <laughs> Even though she was the one who sent me to the therapist. Oh, I right. I was expressing my anger and that was very uncomfortable she for her. She didn't get what she had planned. No, no, she did not. And she didn't want the truth. She can't <laughs> handle the truth. <laughs> Uh, so I had, a, I mean, I had a similar message mm -hmm. through my family that, that anger was, simply being a girl, anger was not allowed. It was not right. feminine. And right. God knows I wanted to be feminine. What would I be if I wasn't feminine? That was just unthinkable. Yeah. I mean, I heard it said once, and I'm sure it's a gross oversimplification, but that women have anger under the sadness that they're permitted to express. Yes. And that it's the reverse for men, that men have sadness under the anger that oh. they're permitted to express. Oh, that's very interesting. I don't know how true it is, but it it's kind sense. of an interesting thought. No, it does make sense. Although I personally have an issue in that I can express anger now, but expressing hurt or vulnerability is almost impossible for me. Right. So I am trying to address that in my life. I'm wondering, with your experience as a parent, did your having been told not to express anger as a young girl, was there any reverberation of that or inversion of that or expression of that when with you were daughters? raising your own kids? Did you notice anger in them that they were stuffing or did you? how did you deal with them and their feelings in a different way than you were dealt with as a kid? Well, my oldest daughter was not a very angry child. Mm -hmm. So, and she had no reason to be because she was the, the, the oldest and was the queen of the Nile. Thank you. <laughs> I have a younger daughter who was not angry, but was highly sensitive and had anxiety. Right. So that's not quite the same as anger, mm -hmm. but I don't think I was the best at helping her manage that. Mm -hmm. She's grown up and now is handling it on her own. Right. But I was very challenged by that. Mm -hmm. As far as the anger issue, I, I just don't know. I would have to ask them really how they experienced that. I wonder what I would have done if I had had a, a male child and how I would have parented that child because mm -hmm. I'm not immune to the kinds of messages that society gives out. Mm -hmm. And would I have felt, if I had a very sensitive boy, would I have felt that that was something that I had to somehow train him out of? I don't know. Yeah. I know your, your mother loved you very much. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, she was probably trying to protect you. Absolutely. She wasn't trying to make me feel wrong. She was trying to help explain these strong feelings I was having in a way that would that I think in her view would help me feel better. Do you remember how old you were when you got that first message? About being too sensitive? Yeah. God, I don't know. Uh, old enough to cry and be upset about something, you know? So you could have been four or five. Oh, def definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. I'm still sensitive. I'm just, that's just the way I am. 
But I mean, I have more tools today to kind of think things through and do reality checks on situations to see if my feelings are in proportion to what's really going on. But I've learned in adulthood to honor my feelings. Well, our feelings are kind of all that we They're have. They're all we've got. Out. Yeah. And our gut <laughs> feelings. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Beyond that, I, I, I was know. raised really with this idea that the rational mind can cure everything and that it's important to figure things out. And the way to solve any sense of discomfort could, could be cured by figuring it out. I, I'm laughing because I have a story I tell where I say my family's ethos was that there was no problem that couldn't be solved if you just ignored it long enough. <laughs> There is so much to be grateful for about how I was raised and, and the opportunities I was given and the love that was shown to me. So yeah. I don't I don't mean to cast it as, boy, I really got the, sh the what does Marilyn Monroe say in... Uh, the shit end of the stick? Well, no, I guess she, she says the fuzzy, the fuzzy end, <laughs> end of the lollipop. She says the fuzzy end of the lollipop. <laughs> she did not say the shit end of the stick. I'm sorry, I forgot where I was for a moment. <laughs> Goodness. But um, you're just too sensitive. <laughs> but yeah, but those dynamics make a difference obviously well one thing that you've talked about is your father's emotional remove and that's a bit of masculinity hey you know too to tie us into what we started on about guns and masculinity and toxic ideas about masculinity my dad came from the south which was more of a gun culture and on the fourth of july and other assorted great holidays uh we would have these little parties with a lot of drinking and especially fourth of july he would pull his rifle his hunting rifle out of the garage and load it and cock it and shoot it up into the air oh my god as a an expression of <laughs> he used to say e pluribus unum he used to love to say that because it's on the penny yeah and I guess it means all for one and one for all or something like that yes from, out from, of many one yeah there you go but I never thought of it maybe there was a little hologram there a little crystallized portrait of male culture around gun violence yeah Oh, interesting. It was never aimed at anyone, God forbid. No, no. It was but... always up into the sky, but it was still kind of, it was loud yeah. and it was kind of shocking and it, it was scary. My father had guns and practiced with guns. Yeah. And it scared me. It really scared, guns scare me. Most people die of gun violence in the home. It's not out at right. the shooting range. Right. Or in, right. Um, I mean, I can tell you I've been in situations where I've been so angry that if I were a gun person, I'm not sure. I don't yeah. think I would resort to it, but I I have experienced a depth of anger that feels so so full of rage that it makes you almost fantasize what you yes. what could yeah. I do? Sure, you know, and sure. and luckily I've never and I guess most people don't experience to that point where it pushes them over the edge to an actual act. But I think it does go back to what we talked about about masculinity because the gun is power. I mean, it's overtly a phallic symbol just in the way it's shaped. Yes, so it's power, and this gun violence must back to a feeling of having been yes. stripped of personal power and respect. Yes. I was actually wondering, not to get off the subject, but oh, let's, if you wanted to tell a story. Oh, you know, I wanted to tell you about my upcoming trip to France. Yes. I've been wanting to go to Paris for a number of years now. And the thing is, I have a, a lifelong love affair with French language and French culture and France itself. I know you do. So when I was little, in my high anxiety household, yes. there were these amazing etchings on the wall, two of them. There were really four, but there were two big ones and two small ones. And the two big ones were over the couch. And they were these color charcoal etchings of street scenes of Paris, France. 
and they mesmerized me. And I would stare at them for hours. And there were people in, I still remember the people in them. The truth is I have them in my storage unit outside. They're still, I still oh. own them, but I, I don't put them up here because they're too, too many memories. They're, yes. They're just too <laughs> imbued with the past, Ajita. the past, but there was this woman and she's walking down the bank of the, of the Seine river oh. with the Notre Dame cathedral in the back. And these are old paintings. So, you know, the Notre Dame Cathedral used to be black because they didn't figure out a way to power wash it until sometime in the 60s. Oh, really? So any of the photos or drawings you see of it pre-1960s, it's black. And it's beautiful black. It's, it's a whole different look. So there's this soot-covered black Notre Dame Cathedral and this fashionable woman walking down the street with this kind of big coat on. And I thought, I just used to always wonder about her and who she was and where she was going. And then there was another one that was of a scene of the Sacre Coeur in the Montmartre area of Paris. So I always loved looking at those. And over the years, I thought, wow, Paris was so attractive to me that I became mesmerized as a kid. But now when I look back, and I have a little more consciousness of the circumstances that I lived in as a kid, I think the lure of those paintings wasn't Paris. It was just that it was somewhere, and it was somewhere different than where I was. Yes. And I think any picture would have drawn my attention and would have made me want to be there. And I'm just so lucky that we didn't have pictures of Victorville on the wall. <laughs> because otherwise, this Thanksgiving, I'd be planning a trip to Victorville. Well, I was and just in Victorville, a, well, that would, of well, all things. We may have listeners in Victorville. We, we have to be mindful. But Paris I'm just, like I said, I'm lucky. problems. Yeah. But anyway, I became transfixed with Paris. And then it was like everything fell into place. By the time I reached second grade at Berkeley Hall School, they brought in a French teacher. Oh and we God. started having little French lessons just a couple of times a week for 15 minutes. And we learn that we'd sing songs. Cadet Roussel, a bon enfant. Cadet Roussel, a bon enfant. And, and it was just fun. You didn't sing Frère Jacques? Oh, yeah, we did that too. Okay. And Alouette. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the classics. Okay. Yeah. So then they brought in a full-time regular French teacher by the time I hit seventh grade, I think, at Berkeley Hall. So we were having full-blown French lessons. And then in eighth grade, my parents divorced. And in ninth grade, I think to make me feel better, my mom, and maybe my dad even cooperated in this, arranged for me to go on a summer study tour of France yeah. with Miss Bingham, our French teacher, and two or three other kids from Berkeley Hall School. So at 14 years old, I was on a jet for the first time on a jet on a 707, going to New York, spent one night in New York, which is a whole other story that's fascinating. And then we went to Italy and France. So I got to go there at 14 years old. I'm on a bus from the airport. We pull into Paris and we pull up next to the Notre Dame Cathedral oh my God. that I've seen in those etchings since I was a kid. Wow. And there it is, it's huge. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And so I've always loved France and I've gone whenever I could. And when I lived in New York, especially in the 80s, I went to France frequently, as much as I could afford to go. I actually thought you lived there for a uh, well, while. Well, I stayed there for probably six months longest in one clip. Um, I was lucky. To, I got some work there. And at the time, the dollar was very high in value compared to the franc. And so I was being paid like a huge sum of money to type documents on the weekends. Uh -huh. Because nobody in Paris, this is why I love the French, nobody in Paris would Works. even think about working on a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> where That's all I did was work nights and weekends. So it worked. So I I love France, but over the last 10 or 15 years, due to a couple of circumstances and situations, 
I sort of lost my joie, my joy about France and going to France. And I thought, well, I could go, but I, I don't know. I don't think I love it anymore. The candle went out. And I would think about going and I would look at the airfares every so often, but I would sort of disqualify myself and say, nah, not anymore. That was a different you. That was a different time. Move on. And I, I allowed that deep, strong love of this country and this, this culture to sort of fade. And it's funny because I work with graduate students who travel a lot to go to different conferences, and a lot of them go to France. And I, part of my job is to arrange for them to get reimbursed for their travel. So I'm always seeing what they do and where they go and where they stay. And I don't know, but something clicked this year. And I thought, whether I should or not, I'm just going. And so I started looking at airfares. Mind you, I'm going, but I'm going to go cheap. And so I'm looking for really good airfares. And I remembered that they say that Tuesdays is the day that a lot of airlines post their discount fares. Oh. So I waited for a Tuesday and I looked. And sure enough, on this website called slickdeals.net, a fare for $425 round trip LA to Paris came up. And so I just grabbed it. And as I was finalizing it, I noticed that the trip from Paris back to LA was a nonstop flight, but the trip to Paris was a one-stop flight with a layover in Helsinki, Finland. And it said lengthy layover. There was a, like a little exclamation point, like you might want to check this out. But I had to take it, 400, oh, absolutely. $445. I said, I've got to do this. So I looked, and the catch was the, the flight there was on thin air, and you had to stop in Helsinki, and the stop was 14 hours. But I'm going. That's the point. Yeah. That's the good thing. Yeah. I'm going. That's fantastic. And I'm allowing myself to feel excited about it. And I'm going by myself. Yeah. So... I don't know if I'll have to struggle with any kind of loneliness, but I have one or two people there that I know that I'll get to be in touch with. Right. And I'm going to go have an adventure. You, you will know? have an adventure. Yeah, it's going to be great. It is. It's going to be great. I'm excited for you. I'm so excited because i it's one of these things, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but did you ever have the opportunity to do something, but something in you ruled it out for no, for no good reason? Yes. Just like when you asked me to go I, with you and I said I can't because... Oh, because I don't have the $445. <laughs> yeah. Well, for... For financial reasons, that's valid. But sometimes the reason is less tangible and less legitimate in my case. And I was ruling out taking that trip because something in me, some dark voice was saying, and this goes to the boomer theme of our podcast. Something was saying, it's too late for you to go and enjoy that. You Really? Yeah, some toxic voice was saying, no, that's old stuff for you. You can't do that now. Huh. And by some miracle that I can't take credit for, another voice rose up in me and said, this is going to be fun. That's you're going to go. Yeah. And you're going to do something that you really love. So, uh, yeah. so I'm excited. Well, that's fantastic. Then the next trip you're going to take is to New York with me. Oh, yes. New York, New York. <laughs> hell of a town. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I'm excited for you and your plans. It's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's going to do it for us, boomers. So we will be talking to you next time. Thanks for checking in with us. So long, boomers. Have a good week. Bye. Bye-bye.